turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture, dive into the new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. In the movie industry, there's clarity around who the customer is. There's just absolute clarity. Who am I here to delight? Who am I here to influence? Like, who is that customer, right? And we forget who are customers. Uh, if you're designing a hospital, who is the customer? It's going to be the person in the bed. Right. And, and that's really what the owner needs help with. And for some reason, we get, you know, if you ask the contractor, if, I mean, ask the drywall person, right? Who's your customer? The contractor. No, it's the patient. Like we're all working in a way to serve the customer, which may not be transactionally our firm. Maybe it's more the user. And we all have to be aligned on what we think that user experience will be like today, tomorrow, and the next day, and how we want to craft and shape that, that user experience. Welcome to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Thursday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, Catherine McPhail and I, and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talk with KP Reddy, serial entrepreneur, AEC thought leader, and the founder and CEO of Shadow Ventures. Our guest today is a serial entrepreneur, an investor, and a founder. He's an AEC thought leader, a coach, and a mentor. He's the author of What You Know About Startups is Wrong, How to Navigate Entrepreneurial Urban Legends That Threaten Your Relationships, your health, your finances, and your career. And he's the founder and CEO of Shadow Ventures, a venture capital firm that's investing in seed stage startups, innovating the built environment. KP Ready, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Hey there, how are y'all? Doing really well. <laughs> Doing really well. Thank you for joining us today. I'm, I, like I said, I'm really looking forward to this. We'll probably get into a project that I do with my grad students and I, I think how it relates to what you do. But before we go there, I wanted to say, and since Mark Arlapage's comment is the last one up on the screen at this point, uh, I really enjoyed listening to you and Mark talk um, when you were on the Entree Architect podcast with him. And one of the things that you said uh, in that interview, in that, in that conversation was that we're the, we're the last industry that's creating a product that shapes the future of humanity and then you said, and we're not really treated generally that well for it. So maybe maybe that's a jumping off point. Yeah. I, you know, maybe it means that there's a lot of things that need to change. But when you when you talk about that, and I think you're exactly right. You know, hey, the the things 
whether it's roads or buildings or, you know, whatever the things are, they are truly shaping human experience. When, when, when you said that, what were you feeling? You know, it, it sounds like there's some frustration, which I think a lot of this audience shares, but what do, what are you feeling in relation to that, that I, I call it a disconnect between, Hey, this is what we're doing. And Hey, this is how we're being treated. Yeah. No, and I think there's a second part of that too, is that we design and build things with massive permanency. Yeah. Right. Great. You designed the iPhone four in a year, iPhone five, like, you know, like there's, there's, there's not a lot of products that have to be designed with what does it look like in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, a hundred years. Right. And the, there's very few industries that have to think about that. And um, they get to make up their mistakes in the next version, right? They get to yep. add features to the next version, whereas we have to be have a little bit of premonition around what the, that feature may be needed five years from now, 10 years. So I, I think that the challenge is real, but um, you know, part of my, my feelings around that is kind of why I do what I do. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I'm a second generation civil engineer, grew up in engineering started writing code when I was a kid, but I, I didn't see a path mm. um, staying as a civil engineer <laughs> to really make a difference. And, and so I took a different path. I took the entrepreneurial path and got into tech. And, you know, it's, it's so far, uh, I kind of came out of retirement to start this firm with, you know, with this, this mission in mind, right? This mission. In- well, I love that. And, and we see that. And that's one of the things that I, I think I value when I'm teaching. Generally, I've been teaching graduate students, but I, I did teach a, an undergrad section last semester. And uh, to me, that that brings, uh, being being around those students brings uh, mm-hmm. a lot of enthusiasm because they, these, the students these days are looking at things differently, I think, than we did back when we were in school. Um, you know, they're, they're, they don't, they're not necessarily tied to what other guests have referred to as the noun problem. Oh, I'm an architect, so I have to design buildings, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is that direct association there. So when you think about the future, the future of the industry, maybe even the future of, of, uh, of Shadow <laughs> Ventures, what do you see looking forward? Where do, you, where do you think this is headed and how much influence can Shadow Ventures have on it? So, so I think one of the things, you know, we've, we've talked for years about kind of collaboration and community and all that. And, and, it, and it's an interesting dynamic in our space that while we've talked about it, we talk about interdisciplinary approaches. We talk about all these words, yet we haven't executed on any of it. And we create an academic system that puts everybody in silos. Like I, I, I help out at Georgia Tech every once in a while, um, you know, and it's like the building construction department and the architect. They're all separate. They do their senior design projects separately, and then we throw them in the workforce and we tell them collaboration. Yeah, right. So we're. I, th- I think the future is truly um, blurring some of the lines in order to create collaboration. Um, so, so I think that you know, and I think our role in this, you know, we're we're super fortunate. You know, we're backed by almost two hundred firms and you know, design firms, construction companies, real estate developers um, that back us. And then our broader community of even more um, that are kind of on the same mission with us. And and I think part of that mission is like when people say, you know, like, why? Like, you have to say, why not? Right. There's there's a little bit of like, it's OK. Um, let's figure it out. And one of the biggest things is really um, we're, we're an interesting industry because we're very collaborative and we also don't want to be. You know, I say talk to people about innovation. 
nobody wants to be bleeding age, edge and nobody wants to be left behind. And the number one thing they say is like, well, what, what's so-and-so doing? I mean, you're a competitor? <laughs> like, yeah, like our competitor, like, what are they doing? I'm like, well, they're doing X, Y, and Z. And they're like, well, I guess we're behind or I guess we're doing better, but nobody wants to leave, <laughs> right? Um, so we actually go through this process. Uh, we call it our, our dial process, which is basically gauging the culture of innovation. So there's the, the, the nuts and bolts of innovation, but then the nuts and bolts of innovation, you can put all this stuff in place. It's quite meaningless if you don't have the culture part of it. Okay. Um, and so I think the biggest changes we're driving is one, we, we do have capital, which is great, right? We, we write big checks to startups and do things and that, that's highly transformative, but money is not enough. Like money is not enough. Um, and so you really have to kind of create a movement around these things. So when you think about that innovation, you know, one, one question that comes to my mind is when we, when we think about innovating in the built environment, is most of the innovation coming from inside? Is it coming from, from in-house or is it people that are outside of architecture, engineering, you know, the things that we would traditionally uh, the fields that we would traditionally think about in terms of shaping the built environment is that people from the outside looking and saying, "Oh, there's a hole, there's a problem I can solve." Is, is there a rhyme or reason or or sort of a trend in where you see the innovation coming from? Yeah, I, so so I think what happens is um, most of the ideas and innovation come from, um, yet the ability to to execute those ideas is nearly impossible on the end. Okay. So most of my founders, you know. I don't know, 30 or 40 of them now. We have a lot of founders. <laughs> between our between our portfolio and, and our incubator, we have lots of founders. I don't think there's one of them that, hey, I was walking by a job by a job site and I was wondering how they manage safety. <laughs> like that never happens, right? It was more, hey, I was a superintendent at XYZ construction for 15 years. Um, and I think it's really stupid the way we handle things and like left and started a startup around it. So we we very rarely have people that we have nobody within without any industry experience. The the challenge is is that you know to keep it in the business. Like there's a few companies like you know, and, and I advise a lot of these companies. Like Thornton Tomasetti started their own internal innovation thing several years ago, and I helped them launch that. And um, you know it was tough, right? Like you look around, it's like, are you billable? Mm. Like no, I'm working on innovation. What which which project is that for? Yeah. Right. So if all you can do is customer funded innovation, i.e. it has to fit in within the boundary condition of a project budget, you're not going to get any. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, you know, I guess this is a broader topic because we, we were talking before we went live about other topics that we cover and we get into uh, when when you get into fee structures or, or proposal structures, things like that. And and um, and, and this is not to, to throw anybody or, or their their views under the bus. But, you know, it seems to me that in an industry that is driven by timesheets, that is, um, wh whether you're billing hourly, you're at least tracking hourly, I think, you know, that that would seem to be a, uh, a, a limiter on just about any sort of change. Um, yeah. if, if you're only being rewarded by the number of hours that you're sitting at your desk, so to speak. Yeah, I'll always say like, my, my, my job is chasing asymmetry. And part of asymmetry is that our work hour paid is very symmetric. Right. I need to work an hour and get paid for a thousand hours. Okay. And I'm okay if I waste an hour every one. Every hour I work does not have to bear fruit, but the ones I do work, I need to get a thousand hours. 
Okay. And so that that's my job is to chase that asymmetry. And and the, the challenge is when you think about services companies, as you scale up, all they are all they become is is basically they become a labor. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really interesting. I was out with the CEO of a top five firm, and he said, like KP, based on the innovation you've been working with us on, I think I could go start a five person firm and do fifty million in fees. Okay. Day one, because I don't know why we have all these accounting people. I don't know why we have all these marketing. Like he's like, I just don't know why we have all these things. And then we have we have engineers that don't know how to use computers, right? Like what like what are we doing here, right? Yeah. He's like the problem is. The end customer will, the first thing they'll ask is, well, how many people do you have? How many have? people, yep. Right, how many, so how do you change the behavior of the end customer, developer, owner, whatever, that says, do not judge me on my labor capacity, right? We just need to know that you, oh, do you have the capacity for work? Right. Don't judge me on that, judge me on the end product. And um, and I think that, you know, and, and think about the, the deliverables we go through during the marketing process, project profiles, we do government, what is it, the 254s and the 255? Right, like, right. Like, what does that all say that says, I want referenceability of your projects and I want to know about your people? So I'm basically labor arbitrage. Right. And when you have, when you see any labor arbitrage, it's just a, it's just a, a really fast chase to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any ideas on how to change that behavior on the in customer side? Yeah. I think some of it comes through, um, Understanding risk, right? Like we, we don't like risk, right? Right. And, and there's a reason why contractors financially do a little bit better. Developers do even better than that. And it, it's a it's a risk quotient. Right. right? What right. is your risk tolerance? And, and it's quite funny as an entrepreneur, people are like, oh my God, you take on so much risk. It's like, do I? Or do I just know how to take on risk and manage it well? Like I know what I'm doing. And so I think some of that is how do you get out of your own way. You say the, like, we want to partner with the customer, but then we are a vendor. Right. Like, I love asking developers, like, tell me about your vendors. What do you mean? Like, are trash people? I'm like, no, you know, your architects, engineers, contractors. And they're like, you call them vendors? I'm like, well, what are they? How do you treat them? Yeah. How do you treat them? Well, I, I guess you're right. I treat them like vendors. I'm like, well, right. why do you treat them like vendors? Because they behave like vendors. Because they behave like vendors. Um, they don't ask me, like, they don't know what the economics of my project are. They don't want to take any shared risk. And so that means, but the problem is when you take on shared risk, there has to be an upside. And I think mm-hmm. that's where, back to the chasing asymmetry, right. you might have a project you lose money, but the projects that go well, they have to go really well. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting conversation because now, now we're, in a way, we're discussing the value of an architect or an engineer, you know, whoever the the vendor that doesn't want to be a vendor is, and, and it would change the dynamic of of the economic exchange. We we talked about that on Monday, I guess, in the context and clarity classroom, which is another aspect of what we do here. The the importance of understanding the economics, developer or whoever the the end user is, the, the client is, understanding the economics as being a key to the value that you can, you can bring to the table as the designer or the, the uh, you know, whatever role that you're playing there. So when you think about, so when you think about, let me, let me go a different direction. When you think about the, um, the spectrum of a project, you know, maybe, maybe from, uh, or the timeline of a project, maybe from concept to occupancy. There's a lot, obviously, that happens designing and developing and, and uh, 
constructing and approvals and everything that happens over the course of these very complicated things, right? Where do you think the biggest holes or the biggest uh, opportunities for innovation are? Uh, and it, I, it doesn't have to be linear, but but thinking about it in those terms, where do you think the biggest op- opportunities for innovation are? Well, so I, I tend to exclude, you know, you look at known knowns and known unknowns and unknown knowns, right? And yeah. government is that unknown unknowns, right? So I, when people talk about automating permitting and AI and all this, I'm like, maybe, maybe, yeah. right? Because at, at the end of the day, there's some government that isn't really your partner, right? right. Um, but I do think when it comes to collaboration, and real-time collaboration, and and really this linear iteration we do to develop a project, um, you know, is is kind of what I think is messed up the most, right? And and I really believe words matter, right? Words mm-hmm. matter. If I ask you, Jeff, you're working at an architecture, firm, and okay. I say, how big is your firm? What's your answer? A hundred people. Right. So you define success by the number of people. Okay. That's your yep. that's your successful quotient, right? Yep. If I ask a contractor, how big's your company? Oh. 100 million. Right. So that, that vocabulary starts to matter. And then when you think about as an architect, what, what's your deliverable as an architect? It's, it's a set of a big stack of paper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and if I ask a contractor, what's your deliverable? A building. A building. Right. Yeah. And so there's like this natural misalignment around mission and goals and collaboration. And it's right there in front of us. Right. It's right there in front of us. And so. I think that's where you have to start thinking about where does innovation, like where, like why can't the contractor be involved during the design process, right? Why do we do right, shop right. drawing? Like why, why are we, it's like we're playing this game that says, oh, see if you can figure out my drawings, plans, and specs and see how you interpret them and then create shop drawings. And I'm going to tell you whether you got the right answer or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it works, isn't it? But it's it's like a game, right? It's like yeah. you know, it's like a child, it's like a children's game. Like I'm 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 gonna mess with you, right? Yeah. Don't, nope, wrong answer. Try again, <laughs> right? <laughs> Review. Like, I haven't looked at it that like way. I spy game, like I spy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is that. So hmm. so when you think about things like that, do you look out at at other industries? You know, where where are you observing? Where are you gaining? You know, your cues for for this type of innovation. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, we did this annual summit, and uh, it's become like it's our seventh year doing it. It's in October, I think, this year. But you know, it's interesting. It's always bringing people from other industries, and it kind of like it help, really helps people open their eyes to like what's going on. Because I think you do have to look. The problem is, what other industry? Like, we want to compare ourselves to factory mm-hmm. and things like that, which I think is the wrong idea, right? It's really the movie industry. That's where mm-hmm. we are today, right? Because mm-hmm. movies shape culture and humanity and all the things too, right? In a different way. Right. Um, but everybody shows up to a project. Maybe they've worked together. Maybe they haven't worked together. Mm-hmm. And then they do some things together and then they all leave mm-hmm. and then move on to the next project. Maybe there's an actor mm-hmm. or a director you've worked with before that you like and you have rapport with, which we do the same thing, right? We do right. the same thing. There's If you're an architect, you work with certain MEP firms because you know the people. Um, and And so... We, we look a lot more like the movie industry, but what you're seeing even in the movie industry is this shift to like, now you have Netflix and di- like the streaming stuff, right? Because right. we're saying like, oh, we're going to build franchises together and we're going to go, you know, shape movements together. We're going to go do these things together and we're going to do it over and over and over again, right? And so it's kind of like how the, the movie, you know, back in the day, they had the studio system. 
you were part of you were paid by the studio, you were part of the studio. Right. Um, we're kind of moving back to that a little bit in the movie industry. Um, so I think there is best practices to learn for, from that, right? And clearly the creatives in the movie industry, they, they get paid. Right. They get paid. Uh, they get paid well. That is a really interesting correlation. I had not thought about that before. So, you know, when when we, one of the things that I do with my grad students is we start out first first day of class and I say, you know, look around you, spend the next week looking around you, trying to identify problems that need to be solved. Leave it pretty broad mm-hmm. at that point. Now, of course, you know, I guess if we're talking about innovating in the built environment, we could take that literally and go, okay, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what the things are. You know, there's probably homelessness. There's probably, you know, the, the, uh, how hard it is to find, well, that's already been done. I was going to say how, how hard it is, is to find a parking space and pay for a parking mm-hmm. space, those, those types of things. But when you're talking about that movie industry, I could say, hmm, okay, you know, how, how do I, how do I draw more lines? You know, where, where do I see a hole over here? And is, is there a correlation to, you know, that, like you said, the studio structure or, or uh, the financing structure or something mm-hmm. like that? Um, where, when, when you're, and I heard you, you talking with Mark about this as well, but when you're thinking about these problems that need to be solved, how do you, how do you prioritize them or, yeah. or how do you, how do you say, this is a good problem to solve. This is a problem that maybe needs to be solved, but. So, so I just you know. gave you context. Now I'll give you clarity. Um, <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> in the moving industry, there's clarity around who the customer is. Yeah. There's just absolute mm. clarity. Who am I here to delight? Who am I here to influence? Like what, who is that customer? Right. Yeah. And we forget who our customer. If you're building, a, uh, if you're designing a hospital, who is the customer? It's going to be the person in the bed. Right. And, and that's really what the owner needs help with. And for some reason, we get, you know, if you ask the contractor, if, I mean, ask the drywall person, right? Yeah. Who's your customer? The contractor. Right. No, it's the patient. Mm-hmm. Like we're all working in a way to serve the customer, which may not be transactionally our customer. Right. right. Maybe it's more the user. And we all have to be aligned on what we think that user experience will be like today, tomorrow, and the next day, and how we want to craft and shape that, that user experience. And, and, and it takes kind of everybody being in the room. Like the idea that nobody, you know, not everybody's voice matters, not everybody's opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, the drywall guy's opinion doesn't count. Like maybe it doesn't. Depends on the person. Right. Maybe it does. That's, um, I think that's a really interesting, a really interesting observation because it, it is – you know, I, I wonder, we, all week we've been talking about, you know, problems that we see. We, we start out talking about design process and design technology and then construction process and construction technology. And yesterday we talked about sort of that, the question I asked before about the whole, the whole process of design and construction. And um, the, you know, one, one of the things that we have, uh, I guess, identified is that we do, we do have our little silos. And I don't remember how it came up, but one of the questions I asked in response to somebody's comment was, do we need to control more? Mm-hmm. You know, do we need to have more? You know, if, if it's the architect as developer or, you know, some model, does there need to be more central control or is that missing the point? That's missing the point. Control is a fallacy. Okay. Control is a fallacy. Um, so, I, I, I mean, if you have kids, you, you know this. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. control. If you have teenage kids, you would definitely know this, right? Yeah. Control is a fallacy. Yeah. So, so I think that that's part of, part of how we need to start thinking, right? Like, how do we think about 
the end state? How do we think about it? and how do we really, I mean, truly collaborate, right? Truly mm-hmm. work together and understand like, here's what I'm, here's what, here's what this market needs, right? Here's what, here's what this user needs. I mean, we're seeing it right now with the office world, right? Oh my gosh, what are we going to do with all these right. offices? What are we, are we going back to the office? Like, well, if you, if you turn on the news and we talk about return to office, who do they talk to? They talk to a real estate developer. They might talk to some epidemiologist about like safety, like whatever. I haven't seen an architect on TV. Mm, I haven't right. seen, you know, I haven't seen an architect on TV and talking about the culture of like working from home and like they're talking to everyone except the people mm. that have to think about the next, mm. right? Oh. And so I think at the end of the day, it's like shaping these experiences. And, um, and I think in order to have a seat at the table, and be collaborative, it, it is bringing that, you know, bringing that to fruition um, in terms of just really trying to say, okay, what, what do we envision this project as? And, and to your audience of, of, you know, not being the, the largest firms, right. the problem with the largest firms is they're going to do a terrible job. They start, right? They, I mean, they, they're, they're building their system, right, is how do we turn revenue into profits? How do we turn revenue into profit? And how do we optimize, optimize, optimize? The reality is, Technology is great at optimization. People are terrible. At it. And, and it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to always be optimized, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of it, and, and unfortunately, large firms are always going to be, are going to suffer around, here's our system, our process. And so the ability to, to create and execute a new idea is, is very difficult. Right. You mentioned the CEO a few minutes ago of a, of a top five that said he could, he could start a new firm uh, I think you said of five people and and um, and hit fifty million. How is he going to do that? Is it is it technology? What's what's his plan? Yeah. I'm guessing that's very very different than the firm that he uh, uh, currently guides. Yeah, because the firm he's at is all about timesheets and keeping people busy. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is about executing on the vision of of what the customer needs. And being compensated appropriately and leverage, yes, absolutely, leveraging lots of technology. Yeah. And and reducing, you know, so if you think about process and technology, being there on the front end, it was kind of interesting. I, I remember um, advising a structural engineering firm and I was asking them, how do they work with their architects? Like, and they're like, well, we wait till they make up their mind <laughs> until we actually start doing work. Okay. And I'm like, okay, like, so they're like, yeah, we just sit in on meetings and we let them talk about what they're doing. And we don't go draw. Like, why would you go draw? They're going to change their mind. And I'm like, have you shared that with yeah. the architect? No. Why would I do that? And I'm like, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. Like, yeah. <laughs> everybody's trying to game the other person, right? And so, so I do think uh, when it comes to innovation is really picking apart things that make you more productive and leave more space, like for your, for your kind of creativity. Like I've been, a, you know, I wrote a book on BIM as well, a uh, textbook. It's very boring. Um, but I think BIM mm-hmm. kind of saved our industry, quite honestly. Like, to, mm-hmm. if you if you had to tell someone coming into college, like your life is going to be doing door details in CAD, like we we would have lost the entire millennial generation. Right. But instead, we're like, oh no, you, you do three D, right? They're like, you can get them excited, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so we did save a generation with BIM, but like we just invested, you know, the the talk about my book, but we just invested in a company called Spaces that is like sketching on an iPad creating parametric, hmm. which seems like the opposite direction, hmm. right? Like, I'm like, no, you know, and one of the reasons we invest is like, 
no, we're back. Like that's what people want. It's not like, oh, let me sketch something and hand it to the BIM person. Right. No, I want to sketch and draw and then it automatically go into BIM. I don't want this intermediary. Um, so, so we look mm -hmm. at that and, you know, we've been looking at some trends too, like especially the supply chain taught us a lot. Supply mm -hmm. chain issues taught us a lot. And so like a lot of our MEP engineering clients and investors, they were saying they're designing with product that was unavailable. Right. And they're like, well, how are we mm -hmm. supposed to know? How are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to know that? And so they're iterating around product availability. And it's like, well, when you're designing, why don't you know availability? Right? Why don't you know that? Like, well, nobody tells us. It's not shared with us. So when you think about something like the Spaces app, which is fascinating, and as you describe it, I'm thinking that's the way it ought to be. Mm -hmm. Right? So it, and your job is basically to go out and, and identify these things, right? Uh, mm -hmm. this, the Spaces app and, and the other, the other innovations that are worthy of, of uh, venture, uh, venture capital investment. But what's standing in the way uh, what are some of the biggest hurdles of innovation right now? Because when, when you talk about Spaces app, one thing that I would have to think is a roadblock is large, large, heavily invested tech companies, um, not to name any, but oh, yeah. that, that are probably thinking, yeah, we, we don't want to see that take hold. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are the problem, right? Autodesk is the problem. Procore is the problem. They're all the problem, right? I mean, you have to look at the math, right? They, I don't know what they charge. Seven or nine thousand dollars a year for a license. They have you. All your legacy product is in their right. in their data set. What incentive do they have to invest more? Right. They're a publicly traded company. They have zero incentive to deliver more for the same price. Why would I deliver more for this? Oh, they also have priced the product. They know what the pricing tolerance because they do. Mm -hmm. They are very smart. It's not that they're dumb. They're very smart. They understand what the pricing tolerance is for an architect. And they play right up to that and deliver as little as possible at that price point. It's a business model. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they, but, that, but that's not just our industry. If you right, look at any, right. any industry, you end up with these incumbent software providers that get very comfortable and they stifle innovation. Um, I mean, if you look in the 90s, we had Microsoft, right? Microsoft, like, oh, everything was Microsoft. Can't get around Microsoft. Um, now we have options. Right. What what is it done? You know, it's kind of fascinating how Microsoft was the most stodgy, old, terrible technology, and then now look at them. Right. As soon as the FTC stepped in and said, "Hey, you can't have, you can't own the browser market," <laughs> things changed. Right. It right. opened it up for everyone else. So I think, um, I think that is a big part of the problem. And I think it's also just like we talk about taking risks. You know, that back in the day there was a saying, "Nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM," kind of thing. Right. Nobody gets fired for buying Autodesk's next crappy product. So w when you're out, and I know you have people approaching you all the time. I know you're out there scouting. Um, you're talking to a lot of people. When when you're out looking for the next investment, if I can say it that way, mm -hmm. what are you looking for? I mean, what what is it that that piques your interest and says this might be something um, yeah. that starts the process? Or yeah, yeah. So um, big markets, right? So big markets matter. Can't have like niche plays. Um, I always ask a question of like, you know, how big is the market? If if you win the market, how big, how much revenue can you drive? And then two, if you win, who loses? Mm -hmm. We are in a game of winning and losing. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> that is how that works, right? Yeah, yeah. The, and so, if they tell me if I win, Procore loses, you got my interest. If I win, Autodesk loses, you got my interest. 
Um, if you tell me like, no, we're just going to play well with everyone. I'm like, um, that sounds like five-year-old T-ball. I'm not that interested. <laughs> so everybody doesn't get a medal. Right. Um, and then anything. Um, so we're part of the thing that we're pretty fortunate about is because we have such a great strategic partner community, right? Culture doesn't scare us. Like, so when we see a startup and they say, you know, and, and maybe another investor looks at it's like, well, culturally, they'll never go for that, right? I get the benefit of picking up the phone and talking to all my investors and their employees and saying like, is that true? And like, yeah, that's true. But you could change my mind. Hmm. So if, if you look at it in our community of uh, companies, that's about 25,000 design professionals. Hmm. So if they say, hey, we'll change our mind, we'll change how we think about this process because it is better and we like this technology, I can change their mind. Or at least their bosses. <laughs> we sure. are doing this. <laughs> sure, yeah. We yeah. are standardizing on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets passed down to them. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah. creates enough momentum, right? So that the culture, you know, like, oh, this is a huge cultural change. Doesn't. Um, and then anything that actually, I would say, has um, great impact to to the environment in India. Mm -hmm. Like that, we think that's really important. You know, I think carbon credits are a scam. In my opinion. I think there's a lot of things that are scams out there in the, in, in the vein of environmentalism. I remember being at a uh, at a conference where somebody got a, a green building award because they use recycled concrete and then come to find out the recycled concrete was from where they poured a slab in the wrong place on the same project. It's like, so you screwed wow. up and got an award. Fantastic. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> like, fantastic. And, and if you look at kind of the waste in construction, if you say 20,000, I mean, 20% of a project ends up in the dumpster, cut it in half and everybody gets a free house. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. What do you see that excites you? Um, seeing a lot around, I would say, getting tools, whether it's software, automation, or whatever, throughout the entire system, mm -hmm. right? So we, we can sit here as designers and engineers and architects, sit in our computer and collaborate. But, the, the, but that person swinging the hammer, like, how are we connecting? This? Right? They're so far removed, right? right. And so we're, we're starting to see some really interesting technology that combines like IoT, and uh, computer vision, one of our companies, um, Aaron, basically you can fly a drone, it can take a bridge, a building, whatever, turn it into a 3D model automatically, oh. identify all the cracks, run engineering analysis and predict when maintenance needs to happen, either on a facade or a bridge or a pavement or hmm. um, within 15 so, minutes. Wow. Is this coming yeah, out soon? Out. Already out. So here's the interesting thing. Why isn't it being more adopted? Unfortunately, like you have to you know, it's either we have to sell to DOTs mm. or to governments, or we have to sell to owners. And they say, well, my engineering firm. So then we get an engineering firm. It's mm -hmm. like, well, how am I going to make money on your technology? Like I bill hours. Right. So right. How about a different model? All right. Yeah. Right. And if, and if you know, like in technology, we talk about SaaS revenue. So the recurring model. What if you owned the maintenance of the facility? Mm. You were the, you were like the, just like cybersecurity monitoring. You were this facade monitoring. And you use our technology, you charge them an annual fee, and you're not filling out timesheets. Yeah. And we're like, oh, we don't know how to, like, how do we even do that? I mean, we send an invoice out every year and we don't do work. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, but are we allowed to do that? Like, is that ethical? And I'm like, what are you talking <laughs> Like, how do I put that on my timesheet? <laughs> yeah. those, those constructs are really interesting, right? It's, it's, it's fascinating where they've come from and how they've taken hold. And how they control so much. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So we've had to teach them how to build new business models. So when when someone, an architect, let's say, 
has an idea, they identify a problem, they have an idea, whatever, whatever process they're going through, what's the process of, of getting to you um, or, or, or any, any venture fund, but what's the process of developing that idea into an innovation? Yeah, we're, we're, we're very different. So I, I don't like to talk about others, but um, I'm a big fan of meritocracy. Okay. So every deal we look at comes in. Okay. I personally review every deal that comes in through the website every morning. And then I approve, reject, whatever, with a reason. And if I approve, then they, they automatically get set up with me. Um, so even if another VC or a CEO of an architecture firm is like, hey, I got this great startup we're looking at. I'm like, great, send them to the website. Everybody comes in through the front door. There are no back doors. And so um, it drives an interesting culture. Not People don't want to hear about that. But sometimes people are like, no, but I know KP, I can get you a meeting. And my response is like, fill out this form on the website. They're like, What's the point of a relationship? I'm like, exactly. Like uh, meritocracy. <laughs> um, but we have this one company in India. He, he loves telling the stories. Like I went onto the website. I filled out the form. A week later, I was on a call with KP and his CTO. And 30 days later, I got funded. I didn't know anybody. I just went onto the website. Yeah, yeah. And we've had that happen twice now. So, um, so yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty simple in terms of how we interact. That is not how my, most venture Right. quite honestly. Right. It's definitely like a, do you know somebody? So if, if you've got an idea and you want to submit it via the website, the URL is in the bottom left-hand corner right now, shadow.vc. So uh, bring your best ideas and KP will review them. And uh, I, that is that is fascinating that that is your process. How, so how, how many do you review? How many, you know, like on a, on a weekly basis or monthly, whatever? Uh, weekly, anywhere from 30 to 50. Interview okay. twelve to twenty a week. Okay, all right. And how many? Any any rough guess as to how many eventually go through and get funded? Yeah, on average, we make one to two investments a month. Okay. So I mean, it's 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 definitely tough. You know, there's 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 a couple things that, and it's really hard to explain to people because they just don't want to hear it. You know, I tr- first of all, I start with you know, Shark Tank is a show. It's not real. Um, it's <laughs> zero real. Um, Zero, really? Yeah. Zero real? <laughs> so wow. it's, it's a show. <laughs> um, and the, 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 the thing that people have to understand is venture capital is downhill skiing. A lot of investors hmm. do cross-country skiing. It's still both skiing, it's, but it's very different. So when I invest a dollar, I'm trying to get 100 back. Right. I'm trying to get 1,000 back. Right? So my, my bar is very high. So it has to be big market, very disruptive, very difficult. But, but that doesn't mean that other businesses are not good business. It just means that they're not going to scale, right? Yeah. If I said, hey, Jeff, you know, here's a $5 million year business that generates $2 million in profit. You want to buy it? You'd be like, yeah, fantastic. I would say no, mm-hmm. right? I would say no, because my track record is to deliver 30X and 50X on a dollar invested. Yeah. And something that does 5% a year and generates a couple million in profit, that's not my, that's not my game. That's cross-country right. skiing. Um, and it's fine. It's highly predictable and manageable. Um, but, um, but that doesn't make it a bad business. So a lot of times the, the, argument, the argument turns into like, but it's a great business. I'm like, it's a great business, but it's not a venture fundable. Right. Go ask three friends to give you some money and go build a nice business that generates. You know, there's probably very few people that would turn down a $2 million year revenue business that generates a half a million in profit. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice business. It's not my kind of business. That's an important point. And I, I suspect there are a lot of people that don't understand that that dynamic, right? It is it is investment. It is 
uh, high stakes and, and big multiples, which again, I, I think we touched on this in the beginning. I know you touched on it in your conversation with Mark, you know, the idea of investing in a, uh, a professional services firm, let's right. say, d- doesn't, doesn't work. One, because of the labor arbitrage, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't scale. It, it's it's hiring more people, right? That, that's the scale factor. Um, so I think that's that's a big part of it. It's it's based on profitability. It doesn't scale, you know, that kind of. And so, you know, if I went to an architecture firm, if I gave you a hundred million dollars in business and needs to get done in the next ninety days, how are you going to do it? Like, oh, I got to hire more people, right? Yeah. In technology, that's not the case. It's like, yeah, right. we'll spin up more servers. Arturo wants to know if, if uh, there's anything in the works for virtual reality, BIM, and 5D modeling. There's actually a lot out there. Um, there's a lot out there already. Um, the, the challenge really is kind of the adoption of it. You know, the question is, just because you can, should you? <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> you know? um, and so there's, uh, you know, we, we get really excited you know, uh, we're talking about it before, like how it worked for Frank Geary. And those, those are a different level of project. Right. The majority of, of, of our world, middle school, mm-hmm. fire station. I mean, that, that's, that's the core. And like when people talk about BIM adoption, like, oh, BIM adoption, like still not using it on a K through 12 school. Like, I mean, it's just not like, so when you look at the mass market of our industry, some of these tools are just, they are overkill. But there, but there is a lot out there. There's a lot already out there. We have a company called Altura that does no code VR, AR experiences. So as an architect, you don't even have to know how Unity works and all these different software packages. You just plug and play and go. Um, yeah, so I think the other thing we've done, um, you know, earlier this year, we split up Shadow Ventures and Shadow Partners and Shadow okay. Ventures is purely about investing. And Shadow Partners is really about collaboration and community. I, I had the, the, the CEO of a very large general contractor tell me like, hey, what you're doing is, is special and important because a lot of people think it's throw money at the problem. Mm. And you're kind of saying, nope, I'm going to throw money at the problem, but I'm also going to build a community that cares about the problem that is like signed off on like, I'm in, I'm in this with you and I will take risks and I will work with you. You know, so uh, so it's been really interesting, the community building, and I know you build a community, but it's really building this community that's very mission-oriented and yeah. very collaborative um, that wants to take risks and chances and learn about new ideas and models. And so it's, it's, been, it's been pretty fantastic. You keep coming back to that word collaboration, which is obviously an important word. When we, when we think about the future, maybe, maybe we frame this around our audience and say the future of small firm architects, entrepreneurial architects. What's the what's the most important thing for you know somebody that's so maybe it's a one person firm maybe it's a ten person firm but what's the most important thing looking out into the future and these things that you're talking about what do they need to be thinking about and doing yeah in order to to uh, maybe maybe push a more more innovative future or or maybe more secure future for that matter because I think there's you know there are uh, there are assaults from from other uh, industries and providers. Uh, mm-hmm. So what, what should small firm architects be doing and thinking about? I, I think it's, it really comes down to being a specialist in understanding the user. Because the thing that's really changed, I mean, if you take like registration requirements to a side, being yeah. registered in every state and every country and all that stuff, like just take that aside for a second. Um, if you really understand what a patient wants in a hospital and their outcomes and their experience, and you become the best at that. 
and that's all you're, and, and, and you have to be passionate. Like, this is what I care about, right? Yeah. This is all I care about. I don't care about working on middle schools and fire stations. This is all I care about. We live in a world where you have the ability to be the best, to be the number one person. And it might be as a consultant, it might be as an architect, like maybe, oh, they want to do a big hospital in Dubai and I'm not registered there or whatever. So mm -hmm. what? If you're, if you're, if you're, if, if you have an opportunity to be passionate and narrow focused in this world and, and make a great living, right? Make a great living because you're the best, right? The minute, you know, the minute you're not a category of one, you're mm -hmm. a category of many, it's called, it's being competitive, right? right. And so I think uh, I, I do a lot of like this kind of coaching for people and I'm a huge Venn diagram person. I keep making them draw Venn diagrams, right? And so part of it is like, you know, when you draw the Venn diagram, that intersection, that's where you can charge the most. That's where you see asymmetry, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if I, if I just want to hire an architect that can do anything, then I can put an RFP out, right? Right, And get bids yep. and get proposals. But if I say, I need an architect that understands the user experience of a patient in a surgical center in the Middle East, and you're the only one that fits that, then you charge whatever you want to charge. Yeah. You massive asymmetry. I love that. And it, you know, at some point, we've not only got to develop that, right? We've got to have that passion. We've got to develop that expertise, you know, all of those things. But then we've got to be able to communicate that, which I think, you know, we often fall short uh, on that front, I think, in, in uh, this industry as well. Yeah, I think um, we get a little fixated on IP. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's my IP. Yeah. Like that five-story medical office building plans, those are your, that's your IP. Is that what you're really saying? <laughs> like, that's not your IP. Like, it's not that big a deal. Like, give it away. Like, who cares? Right? And I think when it comes to content and sharing information and expertise, there's a little bit of like, well, hire me first. It's like, well, no, that's your marketing. And right. um, I, I don't think anyone's going to steal your, I mean, if they steal your idea, great. So what? Right. Yeah. But uh, when we talk about it in technology, you know, Google was not the first. Facebook was not the first, you know, ideas have a life of their own and, and you just want to be in the mix. Those are excellent points. I mean, I, I think that's, that's one thing that we overlook all the time. You know, the first to the market is rarely the one that we remember as, as being the, the winner, so to speak, in that, in that market or in that sector. We, a few weeks ago, we talked with Marcus Sheridan. I don't know if you're familiar with Marcus, but he wrote a book called They Ask, You Answer. And, and he would have that same point of view. It's, you just, you just put the ideas out there. He, he's basing it on questions that your customers or clients ask, but you, you just, you put the information out there. And one of the, uh, you know, one of the things that he says a lot is who's going to steal it, right? Most people are, are, are not stealing it. Most people are not putting in the work, you know, and, and, and even if they do, you're still two or three steps ahead of them. Yeah. You know, looking, looking back, you're leading and they're, they're yeah. following. What? And, and I think there's like, I had the benefit on my, I took like a two year sabbatical and on that sabbatical, I'd, I'd have people like, Hey, can you do some consulting? Uh, I don't want to do timesheets. I don't want to do deliverables. Like, do you still want me to help? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I basically made it really simple. I said, send me a problem statement, mm. send me a problem statement and I'll go solve that problem. Mm. And if I solve that problem, you pay me whatever you think. That was my mm. entire model. I didn't have an SOW. There were no SOWs. There were no PowerPoints. Yeah. There wasn't even really a contract. It was all like via text and email. And I did like five or six projects and there was massive asymmetry financial. Okay. So can you give me an example? What would someone say their problem statement was that then you would solve? And then how much did they give you? Because you know what? This kind of reminds me of the, the no cost lemonade. 
that my kids would always do a lemonade stand on Nantucket that it was free. But if you wanted to donate something, whatever you felt like it was worth, you should. And they made a ton of money. There was, what do you call it when you get paid a lot more Asymmetry. than you think Asymmetry. you would? <laughs> the asymmetry yeah. was yeah. huge in that lemonade stand. So what is the kind of problem statement that you would get? I'm just trying to imagine that. I got one where a board said, hey, I think my CEO is caustic, but not violating any of his con contractual requirements, but we think he's a bad egg and mm. he's got a three-year contract and we're not sure what to do. Um, can you help us transition him out? Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. So they, the board hired me to be a executive coach for him. Okay. And I sat down with him and said, man, you are fantastic. It's a, like, they just don't value you here is the problem. <laughs> they don't get you. Oh, my you need to be in an organization that values you and gets you. And you should really think about that. Does he know that you did that? Because he'll know now after he listens <laughs> to our podcast. He's very happy. So he ended up leaving. Is he, he on I gave him some ideas on careers to pursue and gave him some introductions. And he's happy. His current employer is happy. And he resigned. <laughs> wow. So you that. tell me a, a CEO that's cool. making called a, a million dollars a year, three-year contract, plus litigation, plus all those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. So what was that? Like one day of meetings and a couple conversations? Yeah. And they kicked me 250. Did you have to buy a new outfit for it or anything? I mean, you go like in, as yourself? <laughs> this is an undercover boss. <laughs> no. Yeah. You know, massive, but, but the thing is like, it's a weird thing in consulting when you, you know, so, so look, I did that little bit of work. I don't know how many hours I've been to it, very little. Um, and they paid me $250,000, right? Nice. So asymmetry. But, you know, when you, when you look at that stuff, I mean, I was able to do that because I didn't like need the money. I was, I had planned on a two-year sabbatical and had all my bills paid for those two years. So I was, it was like extra money. So, but as a firm, how do you get your head around? Like, how, oh, I'm going to go do work on the come or, you know, help me solve this problem statement. And if, you know, like that's, that's tough when you have mm -hmm. a system of timesheets and margin and payroll and all those things, but mm -hmm. so much of, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that probably relate to this. How much of your energy is being put to just keep people busy? Yeah. Like to go or in, I mean, there's so many times, I mean, and that's why I did this during my sabbatical. I was like, I've managed thousands of people and I felt like my entire job was to keep them fed. And when it was all said and done, there was like a, couple of cashew nuts left over for me and they've been all eating steak, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. so I think everybody gets into that mode of like, oh, I got all these people. I got to keep them busy. We just need to win that project because I have mm -hmm. this team that's not busy, you know? So you get in that mindset of like just trying to keep people busy and keep that engine going instead of thinking about like, well, maybe if I do less work and charge more because I'm highly specialized mm -hmm. and take some risks on, an outcome, maybe it works out. So it's one, it's like, it takes a level of courage and a little bit of like foresight and critical thinking to get there. Right. But it's, it's not trivial. Right. I was just in a spot where I could mm. get away with it. Like I didn't, I wasn't going to not pay my mortgage or not pay, make my payroll. Right. And there's a real question around that, yeah. right? Like when you're running a firm, like, am I better off just like being on my own doing, you know, doing less work at a higher dollar than or keep all these people busy. Those are those are important questions, and I, I love I love the you know focusing on that example sort of to to wrap this up. I'd love to keep the conversation going, but we're already past our time, so we've got to be respectful to everybody. So hopefully, you know, hopefully as you're listening to this, either in the recorded version or you're with us here live, you you get a little bit of encouragement, find a little bit of uh, 
of uh, aspiration in, in what uh, KP was talking about there. Th- there. There are different ways to view the business of architecture. Arturo says problem statement, exactly. Just collect problem statements. I love it. KP, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been, it's been fascinating. And we had a couple of uh, comments earlier about how, how they love uh, the conversation. So thank you very much for that. Appreciate you. All right, thanks, y'all. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use, maybe in your practice or even in your life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, every week in the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. Find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. Attention architects and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. 
follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here.